You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It would be hard to imagine a more grimmer political occasion in American history than the 1948 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. The Democratic Party had, two years before, lost the House of Representatives to the Republicans for the first time since the 1930s. Many Democrats, after four conventions of Franklin Delano Roosevelt leading their ticket, were not as excited about the man at the helm now, Harry S. Truman. The vice president picked in 44, mostly to please boss Tom Pendergast in Kansas City. Mocking the popular standard, many a delegate said, I'm just mild about Harry. On top of all the apathy about the man leading the ticket, there was real concern about a split in the party when Hubert Humphrey, the young mayor of Minneapolis, introduced a civil rights platform and states' rights activists bolted the party at the convention in order to support Strom Thurmond of South Carolina on his own what was labeled Dixiecrat ticket. And yes, it was the Strom Thurmond who, not too long ago, was still in the American Senate. A botched playing of taps and a star-spangled banner that was played in a pitch too high for the singer to keep up with it added to the confusion and was cannon fodder for newspapers covering the event. Yet convention stage managers had a surprise. As the president would take the stage, a flock of doves would be released into the convention hall as a symbol of the peace that the Truman administration had brought. But it didn't quite work out that way. As the president came out, the doves went all over the place. One of them perched on the head of Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House who was presiding over the convention. Another bird hit a balcony and dropped to the floor dead. It was not an auspicious beginning for the 1948 Democratic campaign. Yet the doves would soon be forgotten. Because the president, Truman, gave a rousing address in which he slammed what he called the do-nothing Republican Congress and said to the audience, I am going to take it to these Republicans and make them like it kind of unpresidential language that sometimes got Truman into trouble with voters. But this was the way he ran his whole 1948 campaign, with fighting words, taking the battle to the opposite party. And as an underdog, with few believers in him, realizing he had but one weapon, himself, and he injected himself forcefully into the campaign. At the convention, he announced that on July 26th, a day that was called Turnup Day in Missouri, he would call Congress into session and ask them to pass all the programs they had outlined in the Republican convention that just occurred. Of course, the program that Truman submitted to the Congress was a fairly liberal one, and Congress, falling right into Truman's trap, did nothing. This allowed Truman to go all over the country on his so-called whistle-stop campaign, going from town to town, where crowds of people would see him, many shouting, give him L. Harry. First, that might have been a setup, 
as a campaign person would run into the crowd and shout that. But as he went to further towns down the line, it started becoming spontaneous. The crowd seemed to love the president, and the president loved the crowds. How would you like to meet my family, Truman would say, introducing his wife, Bess, and his daughter, Margaret. He called the GOP the gluttons of privilege. We're wrong, he said, and they're right. He attacked, and 16 years after that man would leave office, he attacked the Hoover boom and the Hoover depression. He made 275 speeches over 21,928 miles. A huge, a huge, for a nation that was just getting into television sets, this was still the way to reach the public. Dewey, by contrast, ran what Truman called a soothing syrup campaign. He ignored the president who was shouting at him and focused on being high-minded and expressing himself in very general terms. He was the front-runner. He was ahead. It was the way the campaign would go. And the media bought into it. Dewey's election is a foregone conclusion, said the New York Times. The major polling agencies gave Dewey 49% and President Truman just 45 Democrats, Truman's staff, even Truman's wife, Bess, thought the race was lost. But the president brimmed with confidence. Looking at the crowds, he said, I can see it in their faces. We're going to surprise them. And obviously, you know the rest of the story. Truman would shock politicians and pundits by winning the election by five points, winning Nevada and California, Washington State, Colorado. A liberal campaign by third-party candidate Henry Wallace, the former vice president, would win no states at all. And the Dixiecrats, under Strom Thurmond, would win just a few southern states. In the South, Truman would still pick up Arkansas, Florida, his home state of Missouri, and Georgia, as well as Alabama. He lost the eastern seaboard save Massachusetts, but he also won the House back for Democrats, and he trounced Dewey in the Electoral College. The press and the pollsters offered to serve a dinner of crow to him, and the president enjoyed his moment very much. 1948 has had an impact on almost all elections afterward. It still has an impact. No matter what, no matter how low a candidate gets in the polls, the whistle-stop campaign of Truman is referred to when anyone is a little bit behind. Michael Dukakis in 1988, President Bush in 1992, John McCain in 2008, all use the example of the man from Missouri when anyone thinks the election is over, when the press seems to be a little high and mighty. Yet, there hasn't really been as big of a surprise since the 1948 election. Polling got better. The polls are right most often. And unlike in 1948, where most polling stopped in October, polling agencies will never do that now. 1968 and 2000 were close elections, but pollsters called that in those years. It may well be possible that 1948 is just folklore, that Truman actually was a little bit ahead of Dewey, that the American public actually believed in what Truman was doing and Truman's administration a little bit more than what the media was writing about. We must also not forget that Truman's 5% win was extremely narrow, And at that time, besides the election of Woodrow Wilson in 1916, it had been the closest for an incumbent president since the popular vote was recorded. In many states, Truman got less votes than Democrats running below him on the ticket, senators, governors, etc. In this victory, there were some not-so-positive omens. Most notably, the margin was still very narrow. One Ohio by less than 0.2%. 
California by 0.4%, Illinois by 0.8%. He was perhaps able to ignite the New Deal coalition of labor, farmers, well as Catholics, Jewish Americans, African American voters for one more election, borrowing the keys to Franklin Roosevelt's car. He was able to make the campaign about a defense of the New Deal, since Republicans in the, 1940, in the Congress that they would win in 1946 seemed to be attacking it. And it was a low turnout election, 51%. And part of that may have been because there was overconfidence among Republican voters. He benefited, Truman, from a weak opponent who was forced to hedge on international issues that divided his own party, on whether or not to dismantle the New Deal. That divided his own party. Whether to attack the incumbent President Truman, who was attacking him, or ignore him and remain high and mighty. Dewey was the man who Alice Roosevelt had called the figure on the wedding cake. He was not very well liked, as Time magazine indicated. Yet, President Truman also had a few problems in that area. His approval was not very high, though it obviously peaked for him at the perfect time, the time of his re-election. As many people then liked his folksiness and plain-spokenness, the quotes we hear today, I'm going to take it to the Republicans and make them like it, that also t turned off a lot of people who found him quite vulgar for a president. The eastern seaboard, for instance, was going Republican, and several southern states had voted against the Democrats for the first time since Reconstruction. Indeed, a sign that the 1948 campaign didn't mean much more then the Democrats would hold the presidency little more, and that history would have a great piece of political folklore. The fair deal that Truman promised in the campaign went absolutely nowhere. His platform for health care, for housing, for expanding Social Security beyond what it was, went nowhere. The public wanted to save the New Deal, and that was it. And Truman's election may have done that more than anything. Republicans afterwards gave up any hope of dismantling the basic New Deal structure. But that was it. Truman's next term would suffer from what the GOP campaign strategists called K1C2, Korea, Communism, and Corruption. Truman's Democrats lost seats in the 1950 midterm elections. And then, in 1952, with Republicans running the popular Eisenhower, they won the election. This time, Eisenhower smoothly backed off off any attack on the New Deal program. Without that to be able to rally the crowd, the Democratic candidate, Adelaide Stevenson, could not beat the popular general. 1952 was helped by what happened in 1948. As Dewey lost by only five points, it was easy for a reasonable campaign on the Republicans' part to build up from there. Such thoughts were no doubt in the heads of Democrats in 2004. The president was elected despite losing the popular vote. Gore had a plurality of 500,000 in 2000, the size of a, a medium-sized American city. Yet he lost Florida and then lost the electoral vote. Yet times couldn't have changed more between elections. 9-11, the nation at war all over the world and specifically in Iraq. Republicans having won the midterms of 2002, a rare event, for a president in a first midterm, and with security and terror on the minds of voters. Big issues for the Republicans. Kerry and Bush were locked in combat at the top of the ticket. Not unlike Truman, Bush ignored 
any pretense of a presidential high road and went after Kerry, as did his campaign. Kerry's response was probably poor. Kerry took an extremely long time to respond to attacks from the Swift Boat Veterans for the Truth, an organization that was attacking him. Yet in the debates, Kerry attacked Bush furiously and pulled up in the polls. By election, the race was close. And some polls started to show a Kerry win. Ohio, and not Florida, would be the key for the 2004 election. And Bush would win the state by less than 100,000 votes. As in 2000, there were allegations of vote tampering and improper counting in Ohio. Unlike 1948, 2004 was an extremely high turnout election, as both the Bush and Kerry campaigns aimed to get out their partisans. Democrats spent was called 501c money in Ohio. George Soros funded America Coming Together. MoveOn.org took a key role in this election. Labor was active. Republicans, on the other hand, recruited a network of evangelists and committed Republicans, kind of an Amway-like system of volunteers, a pyramid system with different tiers, with each volunteer having a quota of people they'd have to recruit and get to come and vote or volunteer. President Bush in 2004 had a 53% job approval rating. Not great for an incumbent president, but higher than it would be in his second term. He was winning Catholics 55 to 42, earning 40% of women, 16% of black voters, 35% of Hispanics, and he tied Kerry with females. A pretty deadly statistic for the Democrats pretty deadly demographic statistic for the Democrats. He was doing well enough with traditional Democratic constituencies to win the state of Ohio overall, 50 to 48.7 percent. At this time, Ohio was a very different political zone than it would be two years or certainly four years later. 54 percent of the voters in Ohio approved of the war in Iraq. 40 percent were Republican. In 2008, only 34% of Ohioans approved of the war in Iraq, and only 31% would identify themselves as Republicans. But in 2004, it was a different time. Nationally, just 49% of voters felt that the country was moving in the right direction. 46% felt it was not. It's a danger sign for a presidency, usually an indication that the president will not be reelected. It was much lower than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton got during his presidency. In 2004, we recorded the 1,000, by 2004, 1,000 soldiers would have died in the Iraq War election. And bad news was starting to concern Americans. Yet it was early. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And there wasn't as much of an issue to hook into as there would be a few years later. Kerry, in fact, ran on a platform of being more forceful in Iraq, saying that he would win the war there. 2004 was not a historic election, certainly, but I think it will be an election observed by political folks for some time. It was a high turnout election. Both sides got their partisans out. Kerry's vote total for a losing candidate will be one of the highest in in history. His percentage in losing of 48%, one of the closest. Because of that, many voters experienced a strange thing in the 2004 election. What they thought was a likely event, based on where they lived and what their friends were thinking, didn't happen. The country was extremely polarized at this point. Supporters of the presidents, those living in rural areas, people with high church attendance, for instance, probably couldn't fathom why anyone would vote for Kerry. And those on the eastern seaboard, and those who were Democrats, members of labor unions, couldn't understand why anyone would vote to re-elect the president. It's a highly polarizing election when the loser still gets 48%. Republicans were jubilant at Bush's election in 2004 and the fact that they had held the House and Senate. Yet like Truman, Bush was not able to do much with his victory. A plan to privatize Social Security was stalled. New tax cut initiatives were stalled. Bush suffered continued losses in the war in Iraq and criticism of his administration's handling of Hurricane Katrina. Republicans would lose the House in 2006 and the presidency in 2008. Only Woodrow Wilson in 1916 would see a re-elect that was as close as President Bush's in 2004. But unlike Truman or George W. Bush, Wilson didn't have an ironclad, in-the-gut conviction that he'd win. His aide, Joe Tumulty, had to talk Wilson out of issuing a concession to his opponent, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Charles Evans Hughes. Because of the impending crisis with Germany, Wilson developed a plan that if he lost the 1916 election, he would need to immediately turn the White House over to Charles Evans Hughes out of respect for the nation. It's not constitutionally possible to do that, of course, so he had written his Secretary of State to work out a plan that if it would happen, he would make Evan Hughes Secretary of State. The Vice President would step aside and Hughes would become President. It is impossible that either Harry S. Truman or President Bush, who both ran the country in times of of some crisis in the world, would have thought about such a plan turning over the presidency to either Dewey or Kerry. Most experts didn't think Wilson would get reelected, but Wilson ran a strong campaign for peace, running against what he perceived as warmongering Republicans. While losing the eastern seaboard, something that, by the way, is interesting, all of these three 
closely reelected presidents, Truman, Bush, and Wilson, have done, lost the eastern seaboard. He won big in the West and carried the then Democratic South. His most important state was California, which he won by less than 10,000 votes, and that gave him the election. Like Truman's 48 election, it was a shock, and more than a few newspaper headlines were printed the next day saying Hughes elected. President Wilson won 49.4% to 46.2% of the popular vote. Since he had been elected in 1912 in a three-way election, he ended up gaining in his re-election 3 million voters he didn't have in 1912 to win. Despite the fact that Teddy Roosevelt had campaigned for Hughes, Wilson picked up many of those progressive voters who had voted for Roosevelt in the 1912 election and didn't like him now that he was becoming more the loyal Republican. As Truman and George W. Bush found, second term was difficult. Wilson lost the House in 1918. He'd have to enter. Wilson would have to enter World War I with Germany. He'd lose the House in 1918 and suffered the failure of a treaty for the League of Nations, which he had designed. Democrats would lose the White House in 1920. New elections, new data. It shines light on politics and how to judge history. 2008 adds to this. And we see now a little bit of a pattern with these presidents who are closely re-elected by 5% or less. If it were just Truman and Wilson, well, we might be able to say something about that. But with a third example, it really gets to be pretty clear that a president who wins a close re-elect, that's a poor omen for the president's party in the next election. They may celebrate their comeback win, their close win, But a president, healthy politically, should be winning by more than a squeaker. Americans generally re-elect presidents. And so when they do so, it's often with high numbers. McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Coolidge, Reagan. These guys won big. Close re-elects are rarer and often reflect ambiguity about the present state of the country. Should be a danger sign to the president's party. In all three cases, the elections we're talking about now, the country was involved in breaking foreign policy. And that might help an incumbent president. Wilson was dealing with Germany, not to mention our European allies, who weren't always cooperating. Truman was dealing with the Soviets, the beginning of what would become the Cold War. And Bush was dealing with Iraq and Al-Qaeda. This perhaps made voters want to keep the man in office, despite a dearth of love for the incumbent and for all of his domestic policies. Why are presidents with close re-elects squeaker re-election, you might say, dooming for the party. Two reasons seem apparent. One is the presence of a good deal of now angry partisans and voters of the opposite party who got so close and are now motivated more than ever before. It's a great foundation for a nominee in four years. The second is that the image of the presidency is diminished and the president appears weak by a a low margin re-elect. His own party, especially the congressional allies and state governors, doesn't think that the president helped them that much, especially if they got more votes than he. An opposing party doesn't fear the president that much because the president didn't bring in that much popular support, just enough to beat their nominee, but not a huge groundswell of support. This goes directly to a president's performance in the second term. The loss of the House that also coincided with with two of these three close re-elections and a big loss of seats that coincided with them also indicates that there is something to this trend. 
Any close election would seem to be trouble for the party four years later, but that doesn't exactly hold. 1860, 1912, 2000, and 1960, those were close elections, and they don't show that trend. Parties who won in the close election still seem it's possible to, to win in four years. But when an incumbent president squeaks in, it's a troubling lack of mandate for the party. It seems to be an approval for the office of the presidency more than the party. That's put the president on defense for a second term. The reverse is not true. president who wins big is not necessarily guaranteed to hand the presidency off to his party. Lyndon Johnson had a landslide win in 64, but his party lost in 68. Eisenhower won big in 56. His party lost in 1960. A good re-elect like 1984, 1924, 1936, 1940 might be a good omen, but it's not reliable in and of itself. There's a couple of lessons to speak of on this trend. In a scenario where the president isn't running, such as 1880, which was real close, and the impact on 1884 was seen as well. Republicans almost lost to Democrat Hancock, and four years later they did lose to Cleveland. It's more common now for presidents to run for re-election, so we don't have a modern example of that. In assessing this trend of close re-elections, it might be somewhat controversial that I don't include the, the Clinton 1996 election, although the president did narrowly did not get a majority of the popular vote. He beat his Republican opponent pretty bad, 45 to 37 million votes, although he did lose some voters to Perot, the presence of a third-party choice, a well-known third-party choice in the ticket, meant that both parties lost some voters. But in the election between Clinton and Dole, it was pretty much a rout. The presence of Ohio as a swing state in 1916, 1948, and also 2004 makes this state a bellwether of national politics, but especially of incumbent presidents. Barack Obama starts with a little bit of an advantage in Ohio. He won Cincinnati, one of the few urban Republican areas in the nation, an area that went for Bob Dole and hadn't voted for a Democrat since 1964. Obama's win came with a turnout surge in Cleveland in a margin of 250,000. He will obviously need to keep these supporters excited. That's a tough dynamic for incumbents. But it also means that just like President Reagan and President Clinton found in their schedule time to visit California quite often, it might not be such a bad idea for Mr. Obama to go to Cincinnati and get himself some five-way chili from time to time. Squeaker re-elects, especially 1948, make for great copy, and they make for great political folklore. They're also a troubling sign for the party, as these three elections, 1948, 1916, and 2004, all indicate. Now, it seems a little silly at this point to be discussing this at all in relation to President Obama. After all, he hasn't even had his first couple of months in office, he hasn't been through his first midterm yet, and we're not even into the president's re-elect, certainly. So, talking about a trend that really will predict what might happen in 2016 is silly. But it is relevant because the third election that has occurred, 2008, has sort of cemented this as an important political trend. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.